0: Chapter Two of Cyrus the Great by Jacob Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Birth of Cyrus, B.C. five ninety nine to five eighty eight. There are records coming down to us from the very earliest times of three several kingdoms situated in the heart of asia assyria media and persia the two latter of which at the period when they first emerge indistinctly into view were more or less connected with and dependent upon the former astyages was the king of media cambyses was the name of the ruling prince or magistrate of persia Cambyses married Mandane, the daughter of Astyages, and Cyrus was their son. In recounting the circumstances of his birth, Herodotus relates with all seriousness the following very extraordinary story. While Mandane was a maiden living at her father's palace and home in Media, Astyages awoke one morning terrified by a dream. He had dreamed of a great inundation, which overwhelmed and destroyed his capital, and submerged a large part of his kingdom. The great rivers of that country were liable to very destructive floods, and there would have been nothing extraordinary or alarming in the king's imagination being haunted during his sleep by the image of such a calamity were it not that, in this case, the deluge of water which produced such disastrous results seemed to be, in some mysterious way, connected with his daughter, so that the dream appeared to portend some great calamity which was to originate in her. He thought it perhaps indicated that after her marriage she should have a son, who would rebel against him and seize the supreme power thus overwhelming his kingdom as the inundation had done which he had seen in his dream to guard against this imagined danger Astyages determined that his daughter should not be married in media but that she should be provided with a husband in some foreign land so as to be taken away from media altogether. He finally selected Cambyses, the king of Persia, for her husband. Persia was at that time a comparatively small and circumscribed dominion, and Cambyses, though he seems to have been the supreme ruler of it, was very far beneath Astyages in rank and power. The distance between the two countries was considerable, and the institutions and customs of the people of Persia were simple and rude, little likely to awaken or encourage in the minds of their princes any treasonable or ambitious designs. Astyges thought, therefore, that in sending Mandane there to be the wife of the king, he had taken effectual precautions to guard against the danger portended by his dream mandane was accordingly married and conducted by her husband to her new home about a year afterward her father had another dream he dreamed that a vine proceeded from his daughter and growing rapidly and luxuriantly while he was regarding it extended itself over the whole land. Now, the vine being a symbol of beneficence and plenty, Astyges might have considered this vision as an omen of good. Still, as it was good which was to be derived in some way from his daughter, it naturally awakened his fears anew that he was doomed to find a rival and competitor for the possession of his kingdom in mandane's son and heir he called together his soothsayers related his dream to them and asked for their interpretation they decided that it meant that mandane would have a son who would one day become a king astyages was now seriously alarmed and he sent for mandane to come home ostensibly because he wished her to pay a visit to her father and to her native land but really for the purpose of having her in his power that he might destroy her child as soon as one should be born mandane came to media and was established by her father in a residence near his palace and such officers and domestics were put in charge of her household as astyages could rely upon to do whatever he should command things being thus arranged a few months passed away and then mandane's child was born immediately on hearing of the event astyages sent for a certain officer of his court an unscrupulous and hardened man who possessed as he supposed enough of depraved and reckless resolution for the commission of any crime and addressed him as follows i have sent for you harpagus to commit to your charge a business of very great importance i confide fully in your principles of obedience and fidelity and depend upon your doing yourself with your own hands the work that i require if you fail to do it or if you attempt to evade it by putting it off upon others, you will suffer severely. I wish you to take Mandane's child to your own house and put him to death. You may accomplish the object in any mode you please, and you may arrange the circumstances of the burial of the body or the disposal of it in any other way as you think best, the essential thing is that you see to it yourself that the child is killed harpagus replied that whatever the king might command it was his duty to do and that as his master had never hitherto had occasion to censor his conduct he should not find him wanting now harpagus then went to receive the infant the attendants of mandane had been ordered to deliver it to him not at all suspecting the object for which the child was thus taken away but naturally supposing on the other hand that it was for the purpose of some visit they arrayed their unconscious charge in the most highly wrought and costly of the robes which mandane his mother had for many months been interested in preparing for him and then gave him up to the custody of harpagus expecting doubtless that he should be very speedily returned to their care although harpagus had expressed a ready willingness to obey the cruel behest of the king at the time of receiving it he manifested as soon as he received the child an extreme degree of anxiety and distress he immediately sent for a herdsman named mitridates to come to him in the meantime he took the child home to his house and in a very excited and agitated manner related to his wife what had passed he laid the child down in the apartment leaving it neglected and alone while he conversed with his wife in a harried and anxious manner in respect to the dreadful situation in which he found himself placed she asked him what he intended to do he replied that he certainly should not himself destroy the child it is the son of mandane said he she is the king's daughter if the king should die mandane would succeed him and then what terrible danger would impend over me if she should know me to have been the slayer of her son harpagus said moreover that he did not dare absolutely to disobey the orders of the king so far as to save the child's life and that he had sent for a herdsman whose pastures extended to wild and desolate forests and mountains the gloomy haunts of wild beasts and birds of prey intending to give the child to him with orders to carry it into those solitudes and abandon it there his name was mitridates while they were speaking this herdsman came in he found harpagus and his wife talking thus together with countenances expressive of anxiety and distress while the child uneasy under the confinement and inconveniences of its splendid dress and terrified at the strangeness of the scene and the circumstances around it and perhaps moreover experiencing some dawning and embryo emotions of resentment at being laid down in neglect cried aloud and incessantly harpagus gave the astonished herdsman his charge he afraid as harpagus had been in the presence of astyages to evince any hesitation in respect to obeying the orders of his superior whatever they might be took up the child and bore it away he carried it to his hut it so happened that his wife whose name was spaco had at that very time a newborn child but it was dead her dead son had in fact been born during the absence of mitridates he had been extremely unwilling to leave his home at such a time but the summons of harpagus must he knew be obeyed his wife too not knowing what could have occasioned so sudden and urgent a call had to bear all the day a burden of anxiety and solicitude in respect to her husband in addition to her disappointment and grief at the loss of her child her anxiety and grief were changed for a little time into astonishment and curiosity at seeing the beautiful babe so magnificently dressed which her husband brought to her and at hearing his extraordinary story he said that when he first entered the house of harpagus and saw the child lying there and heard the directions which harpagus gave him to carry it into the mountains and leave it to die he supposed that the babe belonged to some of the domestics of the household and that Harpagus wished to have it destroyed in order to be relieved of a burden the richness however of the infant's dress and the deep anxiety and sorrow which was indicated by the countenances and by the conversation of Harpagus and his wife and which seemed altogether too earnest to be excited by the concern which they would probably feel for any servant's offspring appeared at the time he said inconsistent with that supposition and perplexed and bewildered him he said moreover that in the end harpagus had sent a man with him a part of the way when he left the house and that this man had given him a full explanation of the case the child was the son of mandane the daughter of the king and he was to be destroyed by the orders of astyages himself for fear that at some future period he might attempt to usurp the throne they who know anything of the feelings of a mother under the circumstances in which spaco was placed Can imagine with what emotions she received the little sufferer, now nearly exhausted by abstinence, fatigue, and fear from her husband's hands, and the heartfelt pleasure with which she drew him to her bosom to comfort and relieve him. In an hour she was, as it were, herself his mother, and she began to plead hard with her husband for his life. Mitridates said that the child could not possibly be saved harpagus had been most earnest and positive in his orders and he was coming himself to see that they had been executed he would demand undoubtedly to see the body of the child to assure himself that it was actually dead. Spacco, instead of being convinced by her husband's reasoning, only became more and more earnest in her desires that the child might be saved. She rose from her couch and clasped her husband's knees and begged him, with the most earnest entreaties and with many tears, to grant her request. Her husband was, however, inexorable. He said that if he were to yield and attempt to save the child from its doom, Harpagus would most certainly know that his orders had been disobeyed, and then that their own lives would be forfeited, and the child itself sacrificed, after all, in the end. The thought then occurred to Spacco that her own dead child— might be substituted for the living one and be exposed in the mountains in its stead she proposed this plan and after much anxious doubt and hesitation the herdsmen consented to adopt it they took off the splendid robes which adorned the living child and put them on the corpse each equally unconscious of the change the little limbs of the son of mandane were then more simply clothed in the coarse and scanty covering which belonged to the new character which he was now to assume and then the babe was restored to its place in spaco's bosom mitridates placed his own dead child completely disguised as it was by the royal robes it wore in the little basket or cradle in which the other had been brought and accompanied by an attendant whom he was to leave in the forest to keep watch over the body he went away to seek some wild and desolate solitude in which to leave it exposed three days passed away during which the attendant whom the herdsman had left in the forest watched near the body to prevent it being devoured by wild beasts or birds of prey and at the end of that time he brought it home the herdsman then went to harpagus to inform him that the child was dead and in proof that it really was so he said that if harpagus would come to his hut he could see the body harpagus sent some messenger in whom he could confide to make the observation. The herdsman exhibited the dead child to him, and he was satisfied. He reported the result of his mission to Harpagus, and Harpagus then ordered the body to be buried. The child of Mandane, whom we may call Cyrus, since that was the name which he subsequently received, was brought up in the herdsman's hut, and passed everywhere for Spaco's child. Harpagus, after receiving the report of his messenger, then informed Astyges that his orders had been executed, and that the child was dead. A trusty messenger, he said, whom he had sent for the purpose, had seen the body. Although the king had been so earnest to have the deed performed, he found that, after all, the knowledge that his orders had been obeyed gave him very little satisfaction the fears prompted by his selfishness and ambition which had led him to commit the crime gave place when it had been perpetrated to remorse for his unnatural cruelty mandane mourned incessantly the death of her innocent babe and loaded her father with reproaches for having destroyed it which he found it very hard to bear in the end he repented bitterly of what he had done the secret of the child's preservation remained concealed for about ten years it was then discovered in the following manner cyrus like alexander caesar william the conqueror napoleon and other commanding minds who obtained a great ascendancy over masses of men in their maturer years evinced his dawning superiority at a very early period of his boyhood he took the lead of his playmates in their sports and made them submit to his regulations and decisions not only did the peasants boys in the little hamlet where his reputed father lived thus yield the precedence to him but sometimes when the sons of men of rank and station came out from the city to join them in their plays even then cyrus was the acknowledged head one day the son of an officer of king astyge's court his father's name was artemburus came out with other boys from the city to join these village boys in their sports They were playing king cyrus was the king herodotus says that the other boys chose him as such it was however probably such a sort of choice as that by which kings and emperors are made among men a yielding more or less voluntary on the part of the subjects to the resolute and determined energy with which the aspirant places himself upon the throne. During the progress of the play, a quarrel arose between Cyrus and the son of Artambarus. The latter would not obey, and Cyrus beat him. He went home and complained bitterly to his father. The father went to Astyges to protest against such an indignity offered to his son by a peasant boy, and demanded that the little tyrant should be punished probably far the larger portion of intelligent readers of history consider the whole story as a romance but if we look upon it as in any respect true we must conclude that the median monarchy must have been at that time in a very rude and simple condition indeed to allow of the submission of such a question as this to the personal adjudication of the reigning king. However this may be, Herodotus states that Artembarus went to the palace of Astyges, taking his son with him to offer proofs of the violence of which the herdsman's son had been guilty by showing the contusions and bruises that had been produced by the blows. Is this the treatment, he asked indignantly, of the king? when he had completed his statement that my boy is to receive from the son of one of your slaves astyages seemed to be convinced that artembares had just cause to complain and he sent for mitridates and his son to come to him in the city when they arrived cyrus advanced into the presence of the king with that courageous and manly bearing which romance writers are so fond of ascribing to boys of noble birth whatever may have been the circumstances of their early training astyages was much struck with his appearance and air he however sternly laid to his charge the accusation which artembares had brought against him pointing to artembares son all bruised and swollen as he was he asked is that the way that you a mere herdsman's boy dare to treat the son of one of my nobles the little prince looked up into his stern judge's face with an undaunted expression of countenance which considering the circumstances of the case and the smallness of the scale on which this embryo heroism was represented was partly ludicrous and partly sublime. My lord, said he, what I have done I am able to justify. I did punish this boy, and I had a right to do so. I was king, and he was my subject, and he would not obey me. If you think that for this I deserve punishment myself, here I am. I am ready to suffer it. If Astyges had been struck with the appearance and manner of cyrus at the commencement of the interview his admiration was awakened far more strongly now at hearing such words uttered too in so exalted a tone from such a child he remained a long time silent at last he told artembares and his son that they might retire he would take the affair he said into his own hands and dispose of it in a just and proper manner astyages then took the herdsman aside and asked him in an earnest tone whose boy that was and where he had obtained him mitridates was terrified he replied however that the boy was his own son and that his mother was still living at home in the hut where they all resided. There seems to have been something, however, in his appearance and manner while making these assertions which led Astyges not to believe what he said. He was convinced that there was some unexplained mystery in respect to the origin of the boy which the herdsman was willfully withholding. He assumed a displeased and threatening air, and ordered in his guards to take Mitridates into custody. The terrified herdsman then said that he would explain all, and he accordingly related honestly the whole story. Astyges was greatly rejoiced to find that the child was alive. One would suppose it to be almost inconsistent with this feeling that he should be angry with harpagus for not having destroyed it it would seem in fact that harpagus was not amenable to serious censure in any view of the subject for he had taken what he had a right to consider very effectual measures for carrying the orders of the king into faithful execution but astyages seems to have been one of those inhuman monsters which the possession and long-continued exercise of despotic power have so often made, who take a calm, quiet, and deliberate satisfaction in torturing to death any wretched victim whom they can have any pretext for destroying, especially if they can invent some new means of torment." To give a fresh piquancy to their pleasure. These monsters do not act from passion. Men are sometimes inclined to palliate great cruelties and crimes which are perpetrated under the influence of sudden anger, or from the terrible impulse of those impetuous and uncontrollable emotions of the human soul, which, when once excited, seem to make men insane. But the crimes of a tyrant are not of this kind. They are the calm, deliberate, and sometimes carefully economized gratifications of a nature essentially malign. When, therefore, Astyges learned that Harpagus had failed of literally obeying his command to destroy with his own hand the infant which had been given him, although he was pleased with the consequences which had resulted from it he immediately perceived that there was another pleasure besides that he was to derive from the transaction namely that of gratifying his own imperious and ungovernable will by taking vengeance on him who had failed even in so slight a degree of fulfilling its dictates in a word he was glad that the child was saved but he did not consider that that was any reason why he should not have the pleasure of punishing the man who saved him thus far from being transported by any sudden and violent feeling of resentment to an inconsiderate act of revenge astyages began calmly and coolly and with a deliberate malignity more worthy of a demon than of a man to consider how he would best accomplish the purpose he had in view when at length his plan was formed he sent for harpagus to come to him harpagus came the king began the conversation by asking harpagus what method he had employed for destroying the child of Mandane, which he the king had delivered to him some years before harpagus replied by stating the exact truth he said that as soon as he had received the infant he began immediately to consider by what means he could effect its destruction without involving himself in the guilt of murder that finally he had determined upon employing the herdsman mitridates to expose it in the forest till it should perish of hunger and cold and in order to be sure that the king's behest was fully obeyed he charged the herdsman he said to keep strict watch near the child till it was dead and then to bring home the body he had then sent a confidential messenger from his own household to see the body and provide for its interment. He solemnly assured the king in conclusion that this was the real truth, and that the child was actually destroyed in the manner he had described. The king then, with an appearance of great satisfaction and pleasure, informed Harpagus that the child had not been destroyed after all and he related to him the circumstances of its having been exchanged for the dead child of Spacco and brought up in the herdsman's hut he informed him too of the singular manner in which the fact that the infant had been preserved and was still alive had been discovered He told Harpagus, moreover, that he was greatly rejoiced at this discovery. After he was dead, as I supposed, said he, I bitterly repented of having given orders to destroy him. I could not bear my daughter's grief or the reproaches which she incessantly uttered against me. But the child is alive, and all is well— and i am going to give a grand entertainment as a festival of rejoicing on the occasion astyages then requested harpagus to send his son who was about thirteen years of age to the palace to be a companion to cyrus and inviting him very specially to come to the entertainment he dismissed him with many marks of attention and honor harpagus went home trembling at the thought of the imminent danger which he had incurred and of the narrow escape by which he had been saved from it. He called his son, directed him to prepare himself to go to the king, and dismissed him with many charges in respect to his behavior, both toward the king and toward Cyrus. He related to his wife the conversation which had taken place between himself and astyages and she rejoiced with him in the apparently happy issue of an affair which might well have been expected to have been their ruin the sequel of this story is too horrible to be told and yet too essential to a right understanding of the influences and effects produced on human nature by the possession and exercise of despotic and irresponsible power, to be omitted. Harpagus came to the festival. It was a grand entertainment. Harpagus was placed in a conspicuous position at the table. A great variety of dishes were brought in and set before the different guests and were eaten without question. Toward the close of the feast, Astyages asked Harpagus. What he thought of his fare, Harpagus, half terrified with some mysterious presentiment of danger, expressed himself well pleased with it. Astyages As then told him there was plenty more of the same kind, and ordered the attendants to bring the basket in. They came accordingly and uncovered a basket before the wretched guest, which contained as he saw when he looked into it the head, the hands, and feet of his son. Astyges asked him to help himself to whatever part he liked. The most astonishing part of the story is yet to be told. It relates to the action of Harpagus in such an emergency. He looked as composed and placid as if nothing unusual had occurred. The king asked him, If he knew what he had been eating, he said that he did, and that whatever was agreeable to the will of the king was always pleasing to him. It is hard to say whether despotic power exerts its worst and most direful influences on those who wield it, or on those who have it to bear, on its masters, or on its slaves after the first feelings of pleasure which astyages experienced in being relieved from the sense of guilt which oppressed his mind so long as he supposed that his orders for the murder of his infant grandchild had been obeyed his former uneasiness lest the child should in future years become his rival and competitor for the possession of the median throne which had been the motive originally instigating him to the commission of the crime returned in some measure again and he began to consider whether it was not incumbent on him to take some measures to guard against such a result the end of his deliberations was that he concluded to send for the magi or soothsayers as he had done in the case of his dream and obtain their judgment on the affair in the new aspect which it had now assumed when the magi had heard the king's narrative of the circumstances under which the discovery of the child's preservation had been made through complaints which had been preferred against him on account of the manner in which he had exercised the prerogatives of a king among his playmates they decided at once that astyages had no cause for any further apprehensions in respect to the dreams which had disturbed him previous to his grandchild's birth he has been a king they said and the danger is over it is true that he has been a monarch only in play but that is enough to satisfy and fulfill the presages of the vision occurrences very slight and trifling in themselves are often found to accomplish what seemed of very serious magnitude and moment as portended your grandchild has been a king and he will never reign again you have therefore no further cause to fear and may send him to his parents in persia with perfect safety. The king determined to adopt this advice. He ordered the soothsayers, however, not to remit their assiduity and vigilance, and if any signs or omens should appear to indicate approaching danger, he charged them to give him immediate warning. This they faithfully promised to do. They felt, they said, a personal interest in doing it for cyrus being a persian prince his accession to the median throne would involve the subjection of the medes to the persian dominion a result which they wished in every account to avoid so promising to watch vigilantly for every indication of danger they left the presence of the king the king then sent for cyrus it seems that cyrus though astonished at the great and mysterious changes which had taken place in his condition was still ignorant of his true history astyages now told him that he was to go into persia you will rejoin there he said your true parents who you will find are of very different rank in life from the herdsmen whom you have lived with thus far you will make the journey under the charge and escort of persons that i have appointed for the purpose they will explain to you on the way the mystery in which your parentage and birth seems to you at present enveloped you will find that i was induced many years ago by the influence of an untoward dream to treat you injuriously, but all has ended well and you can now go in peace to your proper home as soon as the preparations for the journey could be made cyrus set out under the care of the party appointed to conduct him and went to persia his parents were at first dumb with astonishment and were then overwhelmed with gladness and joy at seeing their much-loved and long-lost babe reappear as if from the dead in the form of this tall and handsome boy with health intelligence and happiness beaming in his countenance they overwhelmed him with caresses and the heart of mandane especially was filled with pride and pleasure as soon as cyrus became somewhat settled in his new home his parents began to make arrangements for giving him as complete an education as the means and opportunities of those days afforded xenophon in his narrative of the early life of cyrus gives a minute and in some respects quite an extraordinary account of the mode of life led in Cambyses' court the sons of all the nobles and officers of the court were educated together within the precincts of the royal palaces or rather they spent their time together there occupied in various pursuits and avocations which were intended to train them for the duties of future life though there was very little of what would be considered in modern times as education they were not generally taught to read nor could they in fact since there were no books have used that art if they had acquired it the only intellectual instruction which they seemed to have received was what was called learning justice the boys had certain teachers who explained to them more or less formally the general principles of right and wrong the injunctions and prohibitions of the laws and the obligations resulting from them and the rules by which controversies between man and man arising in the various relations of life should be settled the boys were also trained to apply these principles and rules to the cases which occurred among themselves each acting as judge in turn to discuss and decide the questions that arose from time to time either from real transactions as they occurred or from hypothetical cases invented to put their powers to the test to stimulate the exercise of their powers they were rewarded when they decided right and punished when they decided wrong cyrus himself was punished on one occasion for a wrong decision under the following circumstances a bigger boy took away the coat of a smaller boy than himself because it was larger than his own and gave him his own smaller coat instead the smaller boy complained of the wrong and the case was referred to cyrus for his adjudication after hearing the case cyrus decided that each boy should keep the coat that fitted him the teacher condemned this as a very unjust decision when you are called upon said he to consider a question of what fits best then you should determine as you have done in this case but when you are appointed to decide whose each coat is and to adjudge it to the proper owner then you are to consider what constitutes right possession and whether he Who takes a thing by force from one who is weaker than himself should have it or whether he who made it or purchased it should be protected in his property you have decided against law and in favor of violence and wrong cyrus's sentence was thus condemned and he was punished for not reasoning more soundly the boys at this persian court were trained to many manly exercises they were taught to wrestle and to run they were instructed in the use of such arms as were employed in those times and rendered dexterous in the use of them by daily exercises they were taught to put their skill in practice too in hunting excursions which they took by turns with the king in the neighboring forest, and mountains. On these occasions they were armed with a bow and a quiver of arrows, a shield, a small sword or dagger, which was worn at the side in a sort of scabbard, and two javelins. One of these was intended to be thrown, the other to be retained in the hand for use in close combat, in case the wild beast, in his desperation, should advance to a personal re-encounter. These hunting expeditions were considered extremely important as a part of the system of youthful training. They were often long and fatiguing. The young men became inured by means of them to toil and privation and exposure. They had to make long marches to encounter great dangers, to engage in desperate conflicts, and to submit sometimes to the inconveniences of hunger and thirst as well as exposure to the extremes of heat and cold and to the violence of storms all this was considered as precisely the right source of discipline to make them good soldiers in their future martial campaigns cyrus was not himself at this time old enough to take a very active part in these severer services as they belonged to a somewhat advanced stage of persian education and he was yet not quite twelve years old he was a very beautiful boy tall and graceful in form and his countenance was striking and expressive he was very frank and open in his disposition and character speaking honestly and without fear the sentiments of his heart in any presence and on all occasions he was extremely kind-hearted and amiable too in his disposition averse to saying or doing anything which could give pain to those around him in fact the openness and cordiality of his address and manners and the unaffected ingenuousness and sincerity which characterized his disposition, made him a universal favorite. His frankness, his childish simplicity, his vivacity, his personal grace and beauty, and his generous and self-sacrificing spirit rendered him the object of general admiration throughout the court, and filled Mandane's heart with maternal gladness and pride. End of chapter 2